0: Hey there, so last week I talked about the dog writer Stanley Coren. He had a piece in Psychology Today where he basically suggested that the best way to get a dog to stop barking was to clamp down on the dog's muzzle with your hand and say the word quiet to the dog, a method that he says mimics how a mother dog might quiet her pup. In response to this article, Dr. Mark Beckoff wrote a really thoughtful essay saying, you know what, maybe we should be instead thinking about what's causing a dog to bark and see the situation from a dog's point of view as best we can and to acknowledge that they're basically captives in our world and we're asking them to live by our rules and that most likely they don't think about us as fellow dogs so we probably don't need to be communicating to them as if we were dominant wolves in their pack anyway it was a beautifully written response, so I reached out to Dr. Beckov, and I'm happy to share with you this conversation, which touches a little bit on Stanley Coren's article, but also went in some other interesting directions. I hope that you enjoy this episode. And now something completely different. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Bekov. My dog nerd listeners will know who you are. I think that there might be listeners who don't know who you are.
1: Yeah. Well, I taught at the University of Colorado for many, many years and have been studying dogs and their wild relatives for even more years than that. And I'm an ethologist by training. So I really, if you will, get paid to watch animals. So I've done long-term field studies on wild coyotes living in the Grand Teton National Park outside of Jackson, Wyoming.
0: Would you mind explaining even what an ethologist does, ecologists and ethologists?
1: Well, an ethologist really studies animal behavior, and it's usually from the biological or evolutionary point of view. So different from a comparative psychologist who might study behavior, but looking at it more mechanistically. Ethologists tend to do field work, and if they do experiments, they're usually pretty non-invasive, we call them ecologically relevant experiments, so that they fit into the lifestyle, say the sensory and the motor worlds of the animals.
0: So it's like studying behavior in context. In context. But then again, there's always a context, right?
1: Yeah, but the context is really, you can ask dogs and other animals to do things that they don't really need to do or haven't evolved to do. So ethology would be much more related to asking questions like, why do dogs play? Why has it evolved? Why do they court or mate or set mark or fight or signal in certain ways in terms of how it serves them? So the question of the evolution of behavior Mm -hmm. would be, What's it good for? Why did it evolve? With dogs it's different, of course, because we select their behavior patterns, but still dogs and wild their wild relatives like wolves and coyotes have the same basic behavioral patterns.
0: I think that before I became interested in dog training, just the very notion that behavior was something that evolved was completely foreign to me. I thought of evolution as having to do with why animals have different lengths of (laughs) tails or... No,
1: but you're saying something really wise there, Amy, because an ethologist would say behavior is something an animal has as well as something it does. Mm -hmm. So it's a structure that there's certain ways that dogs communicate play or appeasement or submission or threat. And they're very similar to wolves and coyotes and say wild canids because it serves them well. Bearing teeth could, I mean, it can mean a lot of different things. And your comment about context is critical because bared teeth during play means something different from bared teeth when say two dogs or coyotes or wolves are fighting over food or fighting over a mate. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you said is really important because people sometimes think of behavior as just something an animal does, but they don't realize that evolution works on the different form of different behaviors so play bows are very they're very stereotyped and unambiguous across species, including dogs, and that's because it's important for dogs to say "I want to play with you, not mate with you or beat you up or eat you for a meal mm-hmm. so that's really critical whereas. Comparative psychologists would not ask maybe that kind of evolutionary question. Ethologists really also, like I said before, really look at context. And yes, you could get dogs to do certain tricks and you can get them to learn certain mazes or detour learning. And that might be important to them if they were wild. But ethologists, once again, might be interested in can dogs learn certain tasks and why would they have evolved, Mm. you know, do they learn to find food in a maze, say, and then out in the wild, believe me, when coyotes, and I've studied feral dogs and wild dogs, when they're looking for food, they are like running in a maze. So I think it's the ecological and the evolutionary relevance that separates ethologists from, say, just comparative psychologists who are more interested in mechanisms
0: yeah so, uh, that's so interesting it seems to me like it's the economists of the non-human world <laughs>
1: yeah it could be
0: or yeah. maybe the economists are the ethologists of the human world but figuring out like how animals earn a living
1: yeah that's ex- no that's exactly right and so that the ecological relevance question could be once again how do they earn a living i mean And really earning a living in the wild and in in evolutionary terms really means how do they survive, how do they get the food they need, the mates they need, the friends they need, the area they need, and all the things that they need to ultimately survive, thrive, and reproduce. Dogs aren't faced with that. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, see, another fact is people don't realize that probably 75% or so of the dogs in the world are on their own or pretty much on their own. I
0: was just thinking about that today I, and I I remembered that fact and I then I thought, God, that can't actually be true, can it? But it, it, it is, it is. It's, right?
1: it's very true. I mean, I, the I, estimate that, yeah.
0: I was just gonna say, I realized it because I was making some comment about dogs as if they all live in homes and, and something I was writing and then I was thinking about how there would be plenty of dogs who would read that and take, take note and say, I don't live in a home.
1: <laughs> right, I mean, actual home... Dogs are a small percentage of the dogs in the world. And Jessica Pierce and I just finished a book, I mean, it'll be out next year called Dogs Gone Wild Imagining the Lives of Dogs in a World Without Humans. And oh, we, wow. started, we started it two, three years ago, long before the pandemic. But once again, The fact is, people go, oh no, dogs wouldn't do well. Well, maybe pampered home dogs wouldn't do well, but it's estimated there's between 900 million and a billion dogs. So, give or take, if you want to be conservative, you could say there's six or 700 million dogs who are either on their own or relatively on their own. Because, you know, I mean, I've traveled all over in East Africa in China, in India, and there's a lot of street dogs, and so they're not strictly feral, they still get food, some go home, a large percentage don't actually get veterinary care, but they still have contact with humans, but they don't go home, and it turns out that many studies of these street dogs show they're very friendly, they get along really well, they form groups, um, packs like wolves, I mean it's another myth that Dogs don't form packs. Well, dogs don't really form functional packs with humans. I mean, and so that whole we're the dominant dog, we're the dominant individual in the pack, it's very misleading. And mm-hmm. that gets into a lot of the things that I've been writing and maybe even reading about dominance training, and I'm going to be the alpha. There are alpha dogs. It's been a myth in the literature that the term alpha animal, like alpha wolf, Doesn't apply. It does apply, but it applies in a very different way from the way in which people interpret it. But they're not really dominant in the sense of dominating, like, 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 season Milan. It's
0: not like Game of Thrones style, like, who's going to. No, not
1: at all. (laughs) No, not at all. People go, oh, my dog is dominating me. He or she wants to be first out the door. No, maybe they just want to be first out the door. Maybe (laughs) they smell something. No, no, I think you're really right on the mark. I mean, there are people who would ascribe to certain schools of thought who aren't dog literate, as I say, or fluent in dog. And they believe these people because it's like anything else. You know, someone has a TV show about anything. It could be dog training or diet or anything, and you believe that because they've got that notoriety wow. and that publicity that what they're saying is so. And so it's not a criticism of these people. That's just the way they think. Oh, someone's on TV and has a dog show this month. They must be doing it right or something like that. And I think that besides some of the words that Stan Coren used, because I don't like talking about owners and masters, but reading his piece very carefully, except... It wasn't strong enough for me because he does talk about the natural way, if you will, that coyotes and wolves and other canids will say stop a vocalizing animal, okay? I mean, in the wild, I mean, because I've been out there, you don't want an animal howling or barking or young yelping inappropriately or at the wrong time because they could attract other animals, intruders and predators who could take the young animals. That's why I wrote the piece... The two words i focused on there could have been other words but can a dog bark excessively or unnecessarily and <laughs> i mean yes they can i've been around dogs who have just been a real pain in my ears if you will because they've just been barking but you need to really pay attention to their sensory world like i said in the article we use dogs to detect odors and sounds and alarm us, alert us to when something's going on about which we're not aware. And that would be the ethological point of view as you pointed out is that I had a dog who barked a lot and I wanted to know why. And the other thing is I'm not a dog trainer. Do I know a lot about dog behavior? I do. Do I know how to train dogs? Not really. So I had that, a problem and a woman years ago came to my house and in two trials stop Jethro from being a pain barker. But what she pointed out to me, but I knew this, was there's something he's picking up that you're not picking up, so let's play with that. And I don't remember how she did it, but believe me, I was trying to stop him from barking for a couple of months after I rescued him, and she did it in two minutes. Mm. And he never did it again. I mean, Mm. it was simple. So context is critical. When people tell me, oh, my dog just barks too much. I'll go, your dog may bark too much. Maybe your dog had a hallucination. Maybe your dog had a headache. Maybe your dog's got joint pain. Maybe your dog is trying to tell you something's around it, which you're not aware. But that would
0: maybe be maybe the dog is doing you a favor and alerting you of something and you're but we,
1: we depend on dogs to do that i mean when i lived in the mountains i was glad my dogs would bark at night to certain sounds or, or odd sound maybe there was an intruder maybe they're telling me don't go out there's a mountain lion or a bear and so right but you know it's like people moaning in pain yes sometimes people are looking for sympathy But sometimes they're in pain and you don't know, you can't see it or feel or sense their pain. So that was what you just said before, or we were talking about in terms of ethology, is that's why I wrote it. Context is critical. Taking the dog's point of view is critical, especially when, say, a dog starts barking excessively, or what you think is excessive or unnecessarily, when they hadn't done it before. It's a change in behavior. But the other thing, of course, which, although I'm not a trainer, but to me, it's a no-brainer that the last thing you want to do to a distressed animal is punish them or hit them or slap them. And as I pointed out in my article, I mean, countless times I've seen wild coyotes and wolves if you will, being told by other wolves or coyotes not to vocalize. But you got to be really careful when you're the human doing it to a dog who's upset. And once again, Stan Corin points that out. So,
0: I mean, I hear everything you're saying, and a lot of it, and what you wrote too, boils down to stop trying to do mind reading. He says, yeah. like he writes here, from a behavior control point of view, I knew that that was a bad move. He's talking about his friend's shut up to his dog. Here we have a situation where the dog's master simply does not understand the basics of dog language. To a dog, loud short words like no, shut up, don't bark, and so forth just sound like barks. Think of it this way, the dog barks to signal a potential problem. Now you, who are supposed to be leader of pack, come yeah. over and also bark. This clearly yeah. indicates that you agree that this is the right time to sound the alarm. Apparently, Chester read the situation this way and responded by actually increasing the amount of barking that he mm-hmm. was doing. Now, what's strange to me about this paragraph, and other paragraphs, but this is just the one I picked up, is, I mean, how do we know that to a dog, loud, short words like, no, shut up, don't bark, and so forth just sound like barks, too? Well, we
1: don't, but I think what Stan is saying that, once again, from an evolutionary point of view, because I had a student who studied this, These short commands, like no, stop, and all that, are very, very similar to alarm calls. Mm -hmm. They have an abrupt onset and offset. There's not a lot of noise. There's very specific signals, and they've evolved because when an animal wants another animal to do something because it's important they do it, maybe they don't want to attract predators, or they're doing something that could be dangerous to themselves and the whole group, they want a signal that is totally unambiguous it's like danger right and whatever is wired into them to respond to danger run into a hole go under the bed whatever it is well, same
0: thing of- with us right like sharp sound exactly. loud sound sirens the smoke detector going off is like the worst thing possible to my dog
1: yeah, exactly. No, you, you know, you've hit it on the head, right? Along calls and these kinds of signals in humans. I mean, we're mammals, so we're going to have a lot of similarities to other mammals in terms of the way in which we communicate. So that's exactly right. And as one of my friends, I was on a ride and we were talking about this uh, yesterday. She's got young kids, and she said, Yeah, when River had her son has a temper tantrum. The last thing she has to do is have a temper tantrum back because it just accelerates. It's it's sort of like fighting fire with fire or adding oil to the fire. Yeah, so once again, yeah, you can stop a dog from doing certain things or a kid by punishing them and doing some nasty stuff, and then they're living in fear for the rest of their lives. And I really mean that. I've had some people tell me that, One of the dogs I rescued, I think, had that kind of experience, and it was a labor of love to get her to even if, I mean, I think she liked me and my partner at the time, but it was a labor of love because it was clear she'd been really severely abused when she was young. She was getting mixed signals, I love you, and and then being slapped or screamed at. And probably what she was saying was, can't you tell I'm distressed and you're just adding to my stress? Or my, my distress.
0: So then he goes into talking about, to quiet barking, the dominant animal places its mouth over the offender's muzzle. Yeah,
1: right. So you could use your hand. I can tell you right now that with, even with some of the dogs I knew really well, the last thing I was going to do when they were barking crazily was to put my hand near their mouth. <laughs> I mean, there's no way I was going to do that. Right. And right. I mean, so a mother coyote or a mother wolf will sometimes put her muzzle over the muzzle of a young animal and squeeze it softly. They're not trying to injure their children. They're trying to, in a sense, either stop them from opening their mouth to vocalize or basically send another message. And I'm not sure it could be just stop this, not meant as a punishment per se. And so Does that work? Yeah, it can work. But like I said, with the dogs I knew really well, if they were barking crazily, the last thing I was gonna do was put my hand near their mouth.
0: Doesn't his suggestion that a human mimics this kind of suggest that our dogs think of us as other dogs?
1: Yeah, that's exactly my point that I was making before is they don't consider us as other dogs, you know? I mean, there's no reason to think they consider us as other dogs. And that's that whole confusion when people go, I'm the alpha member of this pack of dogs in my house. And it could be them and one dog or them and two dogs. And no, you're not a dog. You're, I mean, I'm not saying they're saying, oh, you know, you're not a dog, you're a human. We don't communicate like they do. And a lot of times we have this relationship with them where even... If we're not trying to intimidate or control or dominate them that's how they look at us because we do in fact control their behavior i mentioned it in my article and jessica pierce and my book called unleashing your dog really is written with the premise that dogs are captive animals i mean especially home dogs but even some free-ranging they're captive we don't mean it in a pejorative way we just mean that We control where they go, who they play with, when they eat, where they eat, when they poop, where they pee. And so-
0: You said, and the consequences of so many of the behaviors that they're going to engage in.
1: Exactly. Once again, they can interpret no. And everybody I know at some point has said no to a dog. I mean, it just comes out. It could be the way you say it. And yes, sometimes it comes out and it's a little too no. But when that happens once or twice, it just happens reflexively. That's not where, in my opinion, once again, I'm not a trainer, but in my opinion, that's not where the damage is done. Where the damage is really done is that persistent. saying no, I I actually published this article, uh, because when I go to dog parks, I always do the citizen science stuff, either alone or with people, but I called it helicopter parenting. And it turned out that 80% or more of the time, people were telling their dogs, not to do something and maybe they wanted them not to do it. But only five percent of the time did they just spontaneously say good dog. I did that all the time. And people would say, why are you saying why are you telling your dog a good dog? Why are you saying good dog to your dog? They didn't do anything. And I said that's my point. They don't have to do something to be my buddy and my good it's like telling a friend of yours, hey I really like you. You know, it's not like they have to earn that praise. It's just A nice, friendly way to do it.
0: Well, and also engaging in a non-annoying behavior is, by definition, engaging in a behavior that you like. And so you can go ahead and reinforce that behavior.
1: It could be that, too. And sometimes I I just... Love your dog. (laughs) When I go to dog parks, sometimes i just say good dog to a dog. And, And in all honesty, many people know that's an okay thing to do. But what struck me in the helicopter parenting or dogging little study was that more than 80% of the people were saying no or stop, were controlling their dogs to get them to stop doing something. And very few actually, even when they're playing, I can remember a lot of instances you've got dogs playing and the dog leaves the play group, sort of runs back to their human to say hello or whatever they're doing. And I would always say, go play. How few people would say, go back and play. You know what I mean? Just not that the dog isn't, you're sort of giving the dog permission to do something. And I don't think the dog was coming over to say, oh, is it okay if I play? They may have been coming over to say hello or, or whatever. We don't really know. But it surprised me in many ways that they weren't getting praise either spontaneously or when they were just coming over to be a friend. I don't know. Maybe I have a completely different view of What's happening than than many people? Or probably not many people. Just people who are forever saying no to their dog, or some functional equivalent of no, stop, bad dog. I wrote an article called "Something Like Bad Dog and Positive Reinforcement." I'm I'm just tired of hearing people tell a dog they're bad for sniffing poop. I mean, that's what dogs do,
0: right? <laughs> I mean. I love- Right. And the same thing with this Stanley Corrin essay where he's saying, talking about excessive barking, if you're protecting your person, it might be just the perfect amount of barking. But he's That's also true. saying that the owner is punishing the dog by yelling at the dog. I mean, just the nature of his understanding of punishment seems sort of a technical definition of punishment seems fishy to me. Well, you know,
1: in all fairness, and and once again, I say it because I know Stan and he's a really nice guy and all that, I don't think he does formal dog training and I don't know that, but I am always careful to tell people I am not a dog trainer because my email box gets buzzed out of control sometimes by people who want to know, like after this barking article, I got a bunch of emails about dogs who were excessively barking and I wrote back to them and said, it all gets back to context. I said, number one, I'm not a dog trainer. Number two, before I could make any evaluation or assessment of what's going on, I need to see your dog in action in the context in which this is happening. Mm-hmm. So go find a local positive trainer and have them come observe. And that's exactly what the woman did with my dog, Jethro. She came and watched him before she tried to solve the problem that I was having. And the problem I was having was not because he was necessarily barking excessively, but once again, as an ethologist, I knew there's something that's really ticking him off and it's stressing him. And it was. So That's why. I mean, I lived in the mountains and a little barking didn't really matter, but it was more I could tell by his overall behavior that he was uneasy and and distressed and something was making him bark. I don't, you know, the situation in which it happened, I don't think he was protecting me. I mean, it was in the house. I'd be in front of him or sitting on a couch, but there was something that was really bothering him.
0: How would you categorize um, essay then written by Corinne? Would you say that it's like has outdated information or misguided?
1: I would say that he knows a lot of dog behavior, believe me, I've talked with him and read a lot of the stuff. I think that he comes to it maybe more as a psychologist, sort of stimulus, response, punishment type of thing. And actually I've sent him, because I've written a few essays, not criticizing him per se, but you know, saying there's another view of all this. And he's written me back and been very cordial about it. I just think that, I mean, it was also interesting, too, because I think he was responding to a friend and he wasn't meaning any. I couldn't impunity, ill intention on Stanley Coren's part about what he was telling the person to do. But that's why I'm. Yeah, right. I mean, it gets back to the fact and I think if you just asked him, maybe he would say, "Yeah, no, he's he's not a dog trainer. Maybe he does dog training. I don't I actually don't know. So I'll be honest with you. But it's a different point of view. My input, if you will, (laughs) into the training world, and I guess I have a little leeway there since I'm not a trainer, is I really believe firmly in force-free, positive training. I had a really interesting discussion with some trainers a few years ago about a situation that happened above me. When I lived in the mountains, there were just a few houses scattered, and a woman rescued a dog who just really had had a horrific upbringing, just horrible and the dogs on my on this mountainside where I lived could run free. And dogs would come down to my house. They'd hang out at my house. I would, um, I'd play games with them during the day. Since I worked at home, I would bury little treats all over my property. And they'd spend hours trying to find them and digging them out. I mean, it was really enriching to them. They never went anywhere because they knew that there was going to be food around. And so she had this rescued dog who was desperately trying to play with the other dogs. It turned out that he had, I don't know what happened to him, but it was a human type of thing. So he came to like me, he came to like the woman who rescued him, but he would also take off. So what she did was she bought an e-collar, she put it on herself, put it on the lowest possible setting on herself, buzzed herself, put it on her dog, he ran off the property, And I think it was one or two trials. She just buzzed him at the same level at which, you know, she buzzed herself. And literally for years, because I lived up there, her dog never ran away again. So I didn't know what to say about that. And so I used it as an example One not supporting the use of e-collars and I had some really good exchanges with trainers who said that they could have solved that problem without, say, using even a low-amplitude e-collar. And that was, once again, my saying I'm not a dog trainer. I did not encourage the woman to do it, but, I mean, literally two times, and it was years where her dog just never ran away again. So she asked me if I would do it with my dogs, and I said no. I would call some of the trainers around Boulder who were forced to be positive trainers. So I well, don't know. know. I mean,
0: maybe you don't have a plaque on your wall that says dog trainer, but, <laughs> you know, there's no licensing for being a dog trainer. Not that I'm saying you should go out and start charging people as a dog trainer, but...
1: No, no, no. What I meant by it was that... I,
0: you I, understood I, I, how, why it was working.
1: I understood why it was working, but I, I would definitely have called some of the people around Boulder at the time.
0: You, But you were me. also aware of the possible fallout, right? I mean...
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's why I wouldn't do it. Right. right. I mean, because, yeah. So, down the line, what happened with the dog who she rescued, he never ran away again. And for years, I mean, really great life in the mountains. He'd run around. He'd run around with all the dogs. There were six or seven dogs on the hillside. He'd come sleep in front of my office at home. He'd play with them. And he, you know, the first thing some of these dogs would do, including him, They'd come down and they'd immediately go to this land in front of my porch because that's where I would bury treats. I mean, I I swear I would sit in my office because I could see this big field. I would just start laughing because some of them had, they developed this unique pattern of going from spot to spot. (laughs) And what was also interesting that I pointed out was, and I think it was related to, I didn't write it in this article, but I wrote it elsewhere, that right around my house there were black bears cougars red foxes bobcats and occasional coyotes so these dogs had to be trained to hand signals because i didn't want to yell come on home or if i sensed a bear because i used to have a mother bear and her babies and dogs are no contest for a mother bear and her babies so i got them to kind of look at me, and every time my hand ran into my right pocket, they would come to me because it was food. They knew they'd get a treat. I didn't want to be standing up on the, on the hillside screaming, come, when there's a bear or a, a, a cougar around. And it was That's so good fast. dog
0: training. That's good dog training in my book.
1: <laughs> well, I honestly thought it was really good dog training, to be honest, really. Cause once again, as an ethologist, it was context specific. If I yelled come, they probably would come and so might be danger. And I actually asked my friend at the time, she, she's no longer around, who was a dog trainer, and she just gave me little hints for getting them to pay attention to me when get to see me put my hand in my pocket and pull out a bone. It was so quick, it was unbelievable. I mean, with Jethro, the last one of the last dogs, I guess he wasn't the last dog I lived with. With Jethro, it was like one trial learning. I rescued him. He got used to the neighborhood. He got used to the dogs. He really loved, he was a love muffin. And I would go, Jethro, turn around, hand to right pocket, bone. So if I went Jethro low, he would do that. And I, once again, did not act, because I, I wouldn't have known how to actively train him to look at me every 20 seconds. You know, but you, you know did I mean? you did
0: train it, and then you trained it in pretty much just the way I would teach anyone to teach their dog their name.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. And they've got good hearing, so even if he was 100 meters away and I went, up, he would turn around and look. But then it got to the point with, with him and one of his friends, Rosie, up on the hill, where they would almost run, turn, run, turn, run, turn, expecting me to have my mate, expecting that I might be giving them a treat. <laughs> So, Their worst problem
0: that. I'm puzzled by the fact that psychology today published this when they also publish your work and how Herzog's work and I mean what is the process of getting published in psychology today if this reputable magazine is publishing these things that are well i mean that are suggesting if nothing else mind reading of dogs which if nothing else, I think we're, we can all actually agree that we cannot read dog minds.
1: Well, I think it's a good question. The people who write for Psychology Today, they're invited. They are rather selective. And one of the things that I've enjoyed is that they don't do heavy handed editing, if you will. There's no one who I know there who's a dog trainer or even necessarily a dog behaviorist. But the one thing that I really enjoyed, because I've written a number of responses to a number of articles, some of which, not not by Stan Corn, but, but, you know, everybody thinks they can write about dogs. And there were two articles published on Psych Today over the last couple of years, and I wrote a bunch of articles for Psych Today about myths, and they were motivated by these articles that just portrayed dogs in the most unscientific, un. Dog, these people knew nothing about dogs. So what I like about that process, because I really do enjoy writing for them, is that they assume when people write, they're writing about things they know, but they're also very open to these sorts of exchange. And I was, I had not seen Stan's article. I was like I wrote in the article, all of a sudden my email was, did you see this? Are people doing this? And it's heading out for a long ride, I said. When I come back, I need to study it. I, I mean, you need to read things before you write about them, either praising or criticizing them. So that's really the process, and I think a lot comes out of that kind of exchange. I really do. And, um, one of the articles that I criticized, they pulled. I just said it's really irresponsible. It's irresponsible to have this essay there. And my editor was great. You know, she said, "Well, you need to point out why," and I did. And I said I suggest that you remove that article. The woman who wrote it, I don't know her. She liked dogs and she lived with a dog. She was not at all taken back by it. I just said I think you're doing a disservice to dogs when you write, and how would you like it if I tried to write an article on nuclear physics about or psychiatry about which I know nothing? So
0: yeah. I mean, I think this article is a disservice.
1: Well, Which I tried to point that out, that I but do you? But do you think, think they're going to
0: take it, do you think they'll leave it up and future people will oh, say, yeah. I read how to do this in psychology today, so this must be the latest? Yes,
1: they might, but at the bottom of all articles, when people respond, it tells readers that there's a response to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, I think it's a very fair way to do stuff. I really do. The article that they pulled was really bad. I wrote a response to it and I wrote to my editor and I said, look, Here's my response, and for the same sort of along the lines of what you were just saying, I just said, we don't want people to read it. And she said, if people read it at the bottom, they'll say Mark off or whoever it is, oh, there's a response to this essay. And I said, I don't think that's good enough in this case, but I don't know what else one could do. Years ago, when I started writing for Psych Today, I wrote a bunch of articles that there was this whole myth that dogs don't display dominance and wolves don't display dominance. And there were totally misquotes by, to um, Dave Meech, who's probably one of the world's wolf experts. So I wrote a couple of articles about dominance as pseudo, arguing that dogs don't di- display dominance as pseudoscience and dominance is not a myth. And one of the guys who wrote the article that I was criticizing He actually eventually got removed from writing for Psych Today because his essays were so bad. So what I'm saying is is that, and I don't know this because I have a unique position with them. They publish a lot of psychological, clinical-type studies, and I do the animal emotion stuff, and Mark Dirt does a lot on domestication. And so Stanley's been writing them for them for years. So I would say that I feel very comfortable with the fact that They don't super micro edit. My article, sure, it was criticizing what Stanley said, but it was a mild criticism, trying to raise points about what he said. Some of the ones I've written have not been mild criticisms. They've been really fairly strongly saying that the people who wrote these essays didn't know what they were writing about and people know about them. Maybe that's the best way to say it.
0: It seems to me like it's the equivalent of, I don't know, like a magazine called Health Today, Suggesting that we treat cancer with leeches, and then someone writing a response and saying, Actually, there are more modern ways to do this, and that both the articles are being kept up gives them equal weight.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I agree that it's that egregious, but I do. I understand what you're saying, but I really I
0: mean, like I like it. I'm speaking, I believe it.
1: But I like the fact that there can be exchanges. I really do. I think that it's a good way for science to grow i, I really do and the um the emails I get because because I don't leave comments open because they generate spam and they generate hate and all that and and it's like today's actually okay with that. The default now is comments are off, not on. but the emails I get are very instructive to me. I've written a lot about like in canine confidentially. I wrote a lot about the comments that have come in via email to me about um, different issues about dog behavior. So I would have to say that the response to Stan's essay, the responses that I've seen, including the one, they're not stifling, if you will, exchanges. And I've been told a number of times, and maybe others who write about animals, that they're not an animal journal. I was, or on my site or whatever, and they've actually reprinted a few of my essays in the print edition. So I was really pleased because it hits a very, very different audience. And I would have to say that the people with whom I've had contact have predominantly, in, if you will, in my, our, yours camp about training and other things. They, they really have been. So
0: We're talking about the realm of science here. I mean, to call it like a camp again, it feels like it's giving equal weight to myth. I mean, say it's a conversation. Do you feel like, what do you feel like you've gotten from your end of the conversation with Stanley Korn here?
1: Well, I mean, personally, I can't say what I've gotten, but I've gotten a lot of really positive emails from people saying, thanks for writing your essay or people describing situations they've had with dogs who bark a lot saying that they've solved them.
0: No, but I mean, a a conversation with the person who, I, I guess what I was hearing you say was like, You're talking about a conversation between one author and another.
1: Oh, I make conversation sort of metaphorically that I write something, people respond. Like I've written some essays to which Hal Herzog has responded because he knows more about areas of, say, human-animal communication than I do. But, for example, I wrote an essay a few months ago because I was tired of people saying, oh, during the pandemic, if you need company, go get a dog. (laughs) You know, and I wrote an essay that's gotten thousands and thousands of hits. And Hal wrote an essay about that, the same essay, from a different point of view. He just has different expertises, if you will. So when I say what I've gotten out of it, I'm not sure I would phrase it that way. But what I've gotten out of it would be an exchange of saying, look, there's an other point of view. And the essay that said, basically, okay, it was nice. It was a little... It was not as blatant as that, but it was basically saying, you know, it's a tough time and if your local shelter has an adopt a pet or foster a dog or cat, go get one. And I remember just saying, no, you know, getting a dog really, um, (laughs) bringing a dog or a cat or another companion animal home is a huge decision and we really should, um, we need to be more careful about the decision. And people read this kind of stuff. And a lot of people want to see both two or three or whatever the number of sides of an
0: issue. So on the one side, we have like the dog training that isn't rooted on treating dogs as if we were other dogs in a pack with rooted in like pack theory that has been largely debunked. And then on the other side, we have a more nuanced approach to observing dog behavior in different contexts and dealing with it by manipulating the environment or punishing the behavior conservatively or reinforcing alternate behaviors etc etc is that is that a good I, summary I of so. the two, of the two so.
1: camps <laughs> but i don't look at psychology today as being any kind of dog training manual either to be honest i mean so i published a number of essays i've written with Mary Angeli, who's a really great trainer here in Boulder. And she's actually penned a few on her own that I've published as guest essays. And they've been very popular too. So I get the word out, if you will, personally about the essays that either Mary and I have co-written or that she's written on her own. And they've been very, very popular. But once again, I mean, psychology today isn't a comparative psychology or animal behavior or animal emotions or cognition outlet. Like I said, I'm really happy to write for them. I've written, I think, a couple of thousand and a half essays for them. And they've been very popular. And it's a good way to get word out to a crowd who doesn't think about non-human animals in general from, say, the point of view that I would put forth.
0: And by the way, I've asked him if I could talk to him too, but I haven't heard back. But for his part, what do you think like Stanley Corrin brings to the table for readers in general? Because he writes frequently for them too.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of his articles are really interesting and well done, actually. I mean, I don't mean actually that way. I mean, he knows a lot about dog behavior. So he's written some essays that I think are very interesting. Like I said, we look at things differently and I sent him a copy of an essay that I wrote I wrote an essay about the same topic as he did, but I didn't know he had posted an essay. And he wrote me back a really nice email saying, yeah, that's really interesting. You're looking at it from a completely different point of view. Well, we are because I'm trained in evolutionary biology and ethology and he's a psychologist. So a lot of the differences in approach could be easily explained by different training, by training meaning, you know, academic training. Yeah.
0: Okay. Or maybe so yeah, that, or a, a narrow focus on his part on human psychology rather than animal behavior as a whole, leading to it could be kind yeah. of ske- a skewed view of of animals. Well, um well, I
1: mean, I wouldn't call it skewed necessarily. I mean, it's it's his view from the way he's been trained. I mean, really, on a scale of one to ten, he's really user friendly. Having been trained in psychology, I mean, some of the people who have been trained in psychology and the use of animals are off scale in terms of their views of non-human animals. So, all I would say, and I and I really mean it, I just I think open exchanges are really important. I, I just really do because people could shut me out too. I mean, I'm I say some pretty radical things and. I'm glad that, I mean, not only with it's like today, but with other outlets that I can have an outlet. And if people write to me nicely, I will respond. And if people write to me nastily and I get nasty emails, I don't respond because I have no interest in engaging with people who won't even agree to disagree. So when people get personal, attacking the physician rather than the
0: person. Right. Well, it's, it's all very emotionally charged stuff because it relates to (laughs) the way we exist in the world. I think my issue though with reading some of his essays is here he is a psychology PhD and time and time again, I feel like here I am like barely have a college education, but I have a pretty sound understanding of operant conditioning and classical conditioning Uh and how it relates to dogs and dog training. And I feel like it's something I could explain to a, a novice in 20 minutes. And I feel like I read his work and I feel like the fact that behaviors that are reinforced are more likely to happen again, that behaviors are punished are less likely to happen again, like this, like the whole operant conditioning uh, yeah. paradigm would be complete news to him and that.
1: I mean, whether I agree with him or not on certain things, I mean, he is really trying to do the best for dogs. I mean, I can tell you right now, I mean, I've met him and I've been at meetings with him.
0: I mean, I, I yeah, I absolutely agree that he, he, the good of the dogs are, are, I'm sure, in his best interest. But like, don't you think that's true also of Cesar Malone?
1: I would like to believe that, but I don't know him. So even people with whom I disagree about certain views of dogs and or other non-human animals, I do believe that in their view, they do have the best interest for the animal at hand, and certainly most of the people I know who, who don't necessarily favor or um, stress force-free, positive training probably would too. I mean, to me, frankly, it's just an expression of my view of the world. I just—I've taught in a local jail for 20 years, and I've taught people from pickpockets to murderers, and the punishment-based stuff in the long run, from most non-humans and humans don't work and stuff. So in a sense, my view is that these punishment-based sorts of treatments can often produce very quick results, sometimes not that long-lasting. And if they are long-lasting, then they could be long-lasting because you've basically scared the hell out of a dog or a person. And that's just something I'm not into. (laughs) I just never have been.
0: One last question for yeah. you. You know, one one of my goals with this podcast is to help people think about all the amazing things there are to do with dogs outside of like kids who like dogs are told well maybe you can grow up and be a vet. But mm-hmm. often it kind of stops there. And I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff to be done in the world of people who are interested in animals. If somebody was listening to this and trying to figure out what to go study or what to do as a career, what would your advice be if somebody loves dogs and loves talking about this stuff?
1: Once again, maybe, uh, not maybe even, but, you know, because I really am a biologist and and ethologist, I would say that they should take courses in animal behavior. People are interested in the behavior of dogs. I mean, they're interested in how what we know about dogs and how they learn could be used to make living with them more compatible in a human-dominated world. In this book, Dogs Gone Wild, about the lives of dogs in a world without us, uh, Jessica and I actually write a lot about that, is looking at dogs as mammals, they are mammals, looking as dogs, not as artifacts. I mean, years ago, I was told many times that studying dogs wasn't worthwhile because they're not wild animals. And I mean, basically now no one would say that, but people said that dogs have life histories. They have evolved characteristics. Yes, we played a major role in that, but that's okay. They still breed like mammals. They still have the genes of mammals. So what I've told people, in fact, I did an interview with not a potential student of mine, but a woman who's interested in going to a grad school and um, and, um, and where they, she should focus on dog behavior was really look at dogs as mammals, look at them as real animals, because they are real animals, <laughs> and apply, if you will, biological principles to them. And then, of course, the other side of that is looking at dog-human relationships and how how in the world did certain dog breeds come about? How could the people who were selecting for certain traits, knowing they were deleterious, just continue doing it? I mean, short answer is that, They liked the dogs and they thought certain things were aesthetically appealing and so they did it and they didn't really care if dogs could breathe or not breathe or not even give birth on their own. I mean there's a lot going on there but from a biological ethological view there's wonderful studies being done in India on free-ranging dogs so I'm encouraging what I'm really encouraging people to do is develop the skills as an ethologist or a field biologist or a behavioral ecologist And there's great stuff being done in Italy, on Bali, in India. I mean, probably in a lot of other places of free-ranging and feral dogs. And then people get an appreciation for who dogs are, who they can naturally be, and why living with them in a home or an apartment is part of the package of being a dog, but how you can then give them the best life possible. That's why Jessica and I wrote Unleashing Your Dog. We really did. From the dog's point of view, knowing that dog-human relationships are very important to a lot of people and that people don't, once again, getting back to where we started, was people don't realize that a lot of dogs are just captive animals who are completely whacked out and stressed. I think the proof in the pudding there is I've had trainers tell me that who are overloaded like Mary Angeline Boulder and other trainers who can't possibly deal with all the problems that they're dealing with. And the root of the problem is that these dogs are trying to adapt to a human world. And there are a lot of times the people have good, I really believe that the people have good intentions. I mean, some of my friends who live with dogs, I always tell them they're lucky that I'm their friend because I can tell them about dog behavior. But I really do mean that, that these people are well-intentioned. And sometimes they want quick and dirty responses to training because they're racked out. The people are themselves, and they're overworked. They're overburdened. They're busy. On the other hand, the first thing I do, and I do this a lot on rides because I cycle a lot, and many of the people with whom I ride have dogs, is I say, "Watch your dog. Read a little manual. If so, you know, I can find a good one, or, or read part of my book on dog behavior." No, the dog's not trying to manipulate you. No, the dog's not trying to use you. The dog is confused. The dog is being forced to lose their dogness, as I pointed out in that article. And they have no idea what the hell they're supposed to do because they're being forced to live in a human world. I mean, you know this. So, but a lot of people really need that reinforcement. And that's why, getting back to those myth papers, dogs don't live in the present. Dogs have a past. Just rescue an abused dog. They don't live in the present. They're not zen-like, for example. Dogs are not our best friends. Dogs are not unconditional lovers. And I really mean that. The essays that I've written on this for Psych Today have gotten tens of thousands of hits. And most of the comments that come in thank me for that because one of the myths that really is destructive is that dogs are our best friends and they're unconditional lovers. And I've had people say to me, I don't feel my dog loves me. Is there something wrong with me, meaning the person? So no, I mean, and I really mean this seriously. I've had people at dog parks come up to me and say that. I go, no, tell me a bit about your dog. I don't know your dog. Oh, my dog was rescued. Oh, my dog was abused. Oh, my dog didn't like women, didn't like men, didn't like children. And I'm going, oh, well, it's not about you. It's about the dog. <laughs> and, and, but if you say it right and you say it nicely, then you really can win them over and teach them dogs. So this idea that how would you like if you were kept in a certain su- situation where you lost your humanness your womanness your manness whatever you want to call it and that's what's happening to dogs they're being forced to lose their dogness because they're being forced to live in human environments uh, and it's a good it's a good point for me to end on there because I do have to go but that's a chunk of towards the end of dogs gone wild is trying to understand that there's a lot of dogs who do really well without us because they'll be free. Well, they'll have more freedoms and that's what unleashing your dog was all about or is all about. But once again, getting back to where we began is, there's no universal dog. Dogs are unique. What works for one dog may not work for another dog. Dogs have different personalities, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know all of this and so that's what I was trying to point out in, in the essay I wrote in response to Stan was that certain techniques might work. I mean, I'm talking about positive force techniques for Joe, but not Harry or for Mary and not Jane. And you just need to learn dog and learn who your dog is. And when, you, when I ask people to do that, they love it. I got an email recently from a woman in the UK who said she had read something I wrote. And she and her dog have a completely different relationship now. She always loved her dog, and she never would hit her dog or punish her dog that way. But she said, wow. So I watch him, and I'll I'll just read something that just came in about a half hour before you wrote, because it, it really touched me. Let me see. Oh, yeah, he said... My wife and girlfriend moved here to join me in 2017 with her dog Echo. I worked from home before the pandemic and found a lot of joy in observing Echo's behavior. Your work resonates so much with me because I devote a lot of thought and time to the small ways in which we can enhance Echo's life or make the world we create easier for her to make sense of. And so what he and his wife were asking me was for references to papers on dog behavior. This guy is, he's an atmospheric scientist, he's not a dog. And so that made my day. I don't know him, I've never met him. And I said, watch your dog. And when people are asked to do that, they actually, most people love it. They really do. And I get all these emails about, oh, my dog did this and my dog did this. And when the, when they're driving me crazy, I sort of put them in a folder and I come out and meet them at some time. And I wind up just laughing at the stories. And I'm a big advocate of citizen science. I mm-hmm. can learn a lot from these people. And if they ask me questions that I think are ludicrous or they have observations, I don't say that. I just say, look, can't answer that right now. I just don't know enough. We've covered a lot of ground here, and I just think that there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we know. There's a lot more to learn. But I think discussions like this are really important because the other side of the coin, and it's another long conversation, is that just when people say they know everything about dogs or other animals, they don't. <laughs>
0: So. really appreciate your time and yeah yeah there will have to be a part two to this conversation because i enjoyed it too much
1: <laughs> yeah well send me an email i'm around
0: i ended last week's episode with a comedy clip from the early 1990s featuring adam sandler among others my husband pointed me to another dog related sketch from around that time that I thought I definitely needed to share with you this week.
2: If you have to leave town this winter, why not let the Hurley Boy be your dog sitter? Out of an estimated 30,000 professional dog sitters in the world, the Hurley Boy is by far the best.
3: Hello. Let me feed your dog. Please, if you go away on vacation, Let me feed your dog. Your dog needs food. I could give him that food. Please. Let me feed your dog.
2: Come on, let the boy feed your dog! Hi.
3: How are you? Good? Let me teach your dog a trick. Please, while you're away. Let me teach your dog a trick. I'm already going to be in your house feeding the dog. So, why not let him learn a trick? I know one dog trick. I could teach it to your dog. You can tell everyone you taught it to him. I don't care. I just want to teach your dog a trick.
2: The boy knows a dog trick. Let him teach it to your dog. I don't know.
3: you're still here nice to see you let me rub your dog's belly hey hear me out i really want to rub your dog's belly your dog likes to have his belly rubbed i like to rub dog's bellies it's perfect he lays down i rub the dog leg wiggles so come on let me rub your dog's belly
2: for the love of all things holy. Let the boy rub the dog's belly. He said he likes to do it, and you know damn well the dog likes it too. Just let it happen. That's all we want, dear. let it happen.
3: Please. Let me put a pair of old gym trunks on your dog. I'll pull his tail through the seam in the back. He'll look really cute. I don't see why that would hurt anybody.
2: Please. Uh Let the boy put the gym trunks on the dog. You don't wear them anymore. The dog's gonna look adorable. You heartless bastard. Is it wrong to let your dog look cute? I mean, come on! I've uh, kept quiet as long as I can. But I am not going to stand here and watch you destroy two of the finest people I've ever met. So just do as Mr. O'Malley asks, and let the boy put the shorts on the dog, period. Thank you very much. Finally, somebody's got a brain in here. I thought I was alone. I mean, my God, huh? Uh,
3: <laughs> <laughs> Let me be your dog.
2: <laughs>
3: That's right. I want to be your dog. <laughs> Just put a pillow in a wicker basket and I'll lay in it. I won't bite you, I won't chew your shoes, and I already know a trick.
2: (laughs) Just let me be your dog, please. Tim, I'm not sure what we're going for here.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I want to be their dog.
2: Have you thought this through, Timmy? Yes. All right, Tim. That's what you want, you know I'll back you. Lord, let the boy be your dog. He just wants to be loved. If you can't see that this dog needs a home, well, then you, my friend, are a jackass. Okay, that's enough said. The old man, he summed it up perfectly. You either give boy-dog a home or you You, you miserable Nazi son of a bitch, will rot in hell! And believe me, I will make sure that you get there.
3: Look, I'm not gonna beg you. My track record speaks for itself. I'm confident you'll make the right decision. Come here, boys.
1: Good job.
2: The Hurley He Boy Dog Sitting Service. Let's be frank, the Hurley He Boy is man's best friend.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com.